Welcome all to Take Your Seats, where we review sci-fi movies, mostly, with a different guest every time. I am your host, John Aitken, and co-hosting is my good friend and Take Your Seats resident environmental disaster, Sucky Cat. Hello, Sucky. In in this episode, we we will be reviewing 1972 environmental post-apocalyptic sci-fi movie *Silent Running*. Let's listen to a trailer. A space convoy on a strange voyage, carrying a rare cargo: the forests, the plants, the growing things doomed to extinction on Earth. Have just received orders to abandon and nuclear destruct all the forests and return our ships to commercial service. Man, we're going home! We can't blow up this forest. I can't move! Silent running. Cataclysm in outer space. Every moment bringing its own danger as man explores the mysteries of an unknown and limitless universe. Valley Forge, Valley Forge, what the hell's wrong? You're moving out, you're accelerating. I've got a premature detonation on dome number two and I've got an explosion in the main cargo deck. Now please advise me immediately. Give me Barker. I can't find Barker. I can't find Wolf or Keenan either. I'm afraid, Neil, that they might have been in dome number two. Number one. Meet the almost human drones, amazing companions on a journey beyond the stars. <laughs> the man has a full house and he knew it. Now, how about that? Hear Joan Baez sing Rejoice in the Sun and Silent Running. If you continue as is, we figure you'll hit the northeastern quadrant of Saturn's outer ring tomorrow morning. Uh, that was good. And joining us for this is all the way from many time zones away, Sounds of Audio's podcast's Dwayne Bunny. Welcome, Dwayne. G'day. How are you guys? I'm all right. Um, so you picked Silent Running. What's all I that did. about? Why did you pick that? I one? did. I, I can't believe you guys haven't dealt mm. with this film already. It's uh, it's uh, one of those films that a lot of people, a lot of reviewers that I that I've had a little look around and seen reviewers talking about it, and they say this is often overlooked. It's one that people don't talk about as much as they probably should. It's a hidden, it's a hidden classic, and um, I, I picked this one because of the impact it had on me when I was growing up as a kid. A lot of science fiction films I first saw on on television so with ad breaks all through them and this was one of them Alien was another one but this was one that had a had a really big impact on me as a kid um, and I've never forgotten that particular impact so I thought it's been many many years since I've seen it so I thought I'd suggest that one and have it another give it another watch so what was the nature of the impact was it like the environmental message was it the um you know, was it Joan Baez singing? I mean, what, what particular aspect of it grabbed you? I was actually 
thinking about that today and thinking what was it that grabbed me and i would say more than anything it was probably bruce stern's performance um that grabbed me because uh, to be able to maintain a movie mostly on your own mm. like he was he was on his own for about an hour of that film so um to be able to maintain that and I, I guess at that stage it was in the 80s when I saw it I suppose mm. there wasn't that many films that sort of had that realistic space type look about them apart from I mean Star Wars you had that but mm. apart from that there wasn't too much else to choose from uh, back yeah. then and uh, so it was a combination of the visuals and Bruce Dern's performance I think yeah, you, normally I was expecting you to say the robots, to be honest, because I think that is a quite a quite a good aspect of this film is the robot. What about you, Suki? What do you feel about this film, and what was your watching experience? My watching experience to this is one of these films that was being shown as a, a sci-fi classic back in back in the seventies, back in the eighties, I'd say, and uh, you'd occasionally watch it, and I'd watched it mainly for the robots. It was cute little robots. Of course, you did. Now, yeah, well, you know, I'm easily, I'm easily amused. Uh, and then uh, now watching it again, it's a good performance by Bruce Dern. Mm. Really good performance, as, as Dwayne says. Uh, and the, the robots still are a standout because they're just the way that they move around. Until you actually do a bit of research, you realise uh, uh, what sort of actors that they use to be able to uh, get these robots to, to be uh, used on the screen. Uh, but coming back to it, I, there's a couple of th niggly things about it. I mean, it's as I said, it's a great performance, great film, great visuals, great special effects, great design and everything. But there's a couple of niggly bits since I've rewatched, since I'm watching now as an adult rather as a, as a kid. Uh, well, so get them out of the way, Tucky. What are these niggly bits? It's Bruce Dern is not a likable character, no. really. He's I not agree. a likable character, <laughs> and the fact that you feel you have to feel sympathy for a mass murderer as well, right? So, so that yeah. really, that that just, it, that just tips it over the edge of being not a classic, but just okay film. And that's just me. I mean, what did you think, John? Well, I remember seeing this film many years ago, and I must have remembered it because uh, it was immediately recognisable. Bruce Dern and you know I remember the, uh, the the quad bikes and all that stuff and but I think one of the aspects that you have difficulty with there with Bruce Dern is that he's essentially an eco-terrorist at this point and uh, the film is like smacking you over the head a little bit about the conservatism thing uh, about um, environmental issues that were very strong and very big news in the 70s uh, certainly around this time at the end of the 60s as well um, and so it doesn't lend itself to being particularly it's not easy to empathise with this character however I do understand uh, how he how he came to his how he decided that you know killing people was worth what was going on uh, and these are the last forests on earth and they're just arbitrarily being told by bureau bureaucrats to uh, blow them up and so uh, a line has been crossed there by him. but yeah he's not a likeable character but he is, it's an incredible performance uh, that's something that's really struck me too because uh, when I was looking at I was looking at one review in particular and they were saying that the that the guys were bullying him yeah and 
I, I don't, I don't, I don't really agree. I don't think they were they were bullying Bruce Stern so much. He was very sooky and sulky. Not sooky. I mean, <laughs> uh, I mean sooky. I mean sooky in the real sense, in the Australian yeah, yeah. sense, if you use the word sooky. Um, he was sulky right from the start, and yeah. um, very. It was a very melancholy because the music starts off very melancholy as well, and uh, he he descended very very quickly into madness with his bulging eyeballs all the, right from early in the early in the film so um he and that the guy that he murdered face to face john he sorry. was the, he was the guy who who uh who was the most sympathetic towards him so absolutely yeah uh, it was uh, it was interesting the way they were trying to portray that like uh uh donald trumbull as the uh, D- Douglas Trumbull, rather, as the director mm. was uh, was trying to indicate that uh, if you chew a lot of gum, you don't really care about things. Um, yeah. That was that was the impression. It's a little I bit got. simplistic, but I think it's <laughs> I think it's uh, an analogous to the fact that you've got a population of five on that ship, uh, ex- excepting the robots, uh, and four of them are just normal people who are just lo- living in the day. They've been there out there for months. They don't. They just want to get back home. They don't excessively care about the the overarching conservatism, environmental aspect of what Bruce Dern has made it his central tenet of his life. I mean, it does light on a little thick. What do you think, Suki? I'm just thinking that the the guys have. Uh, I think he says they've been in there for about eight years in Spain. Oh right, yeah, fair enough. That yeah. do it. So they've been there up there a while. So the guys have, have, have got into a routine where they just they need to blow some steam, and that's what they're doing. Whereas. Bruce Stern's character, Freeman Lowell, Lowell, right? He's the only way he wants to blow steam is actually looking after the forest, mm. uh, caring for the animals and the birds and stuff in there. So it, that's what he wants to do, and that's what, he, and he just doesn't like the fact that these guys have a certain way to blow their steam, and it's just bugging him. And he, I mean, I, I can understand it if I'm been tending my garden and all of a sudden some kids come flying past on their bikes or somewhere just straight out of my begonias and I'm going what the hell are you doing right so I'll, I'll be uh, bad about that but to take it to the extreme that he did that's as, as I've said before that just takes it a bit of it so uh, what do you think Dwayne is, is the end uh, I mean the whole idea the, the whole premise of this film is that the earth is losing all of its natural things it's losing its forestry losing all its plants and animals these are like these less vestiges of hope these like these almost seed ships that are for some reason hanging around saturn whereas the sun clearly nearer the sun would have been a little bit more sensible in terms of their plants there's a, there's a number of um issues with physics in this film but i'm not going to i tried i tried to not think too hard about that yeah, because yeah. uh particularly with the lack of vegetation on the earth um mm. they Obviously, in the science fiction world, they would have had some kind of way of producing oxygen. But um, yeah, I, th- I rather than think too hard about the science uh, of it, um, I was thinking more about the fact that everything was the same on the planet Earth. Everyone it, that was that was what yeah, was important yeah. to everyone: just having a job and just getting on with the same day in day out, not appreciating beautiful things in nature. Um, I think that was the message more than more yeah. than the, the, yeah. the science behind it. And um, 
yeah, the fact that no one was appreciating all these beautiful things and Lowell seemed to be the only one that could appreciate it was driving him a bit batty. Mm. He certainly well, expressed that in the second half when, he, when yeah. the isolation starts to get to him. Yeah. Well, the thing is, right, if you've been up in space for eight years and you're enjoying, uh, you're not, not enjoying yourselves at all, the thing that you, you're going to start resenting straight away is the job that you're doing, which is to look after the plants. And that's what these other three guys have started to do. They just don't want to look after the plants. So they, they just want to do goof off and stuff. And whereas Lowell is just, maybe he's got some sort of, it's just, he's he's felt more focused than he, uh, the others guys were. He just wanted to carry on with his job. And this is why he just, just when he goes to the, the as I says, the extreme, right? It's because, you can just see it in these guys. They just don't want to do anything. And he wants, they don't want to destroy his forest and everything. So he just goes there. Well, it's one of them things. I just can't believe that he would do that sort of thing. But once you've seen him in action, ranting and raving, and as uh, as we said, his bug-eyed uh, speech that he had, uh, which apparently, because uh, of all the tears that he was actually showing, was based on experience of losing his daughter. Right, who had died a, a couple of years earlier, right? That, that that's the sort of thing that he, what he Bruce Dern was a big method actor at the time, but that's that's the sort of experience that you bring to a performance like that. Mm. No, I agree with that. I think um, uh, Bruce Dern's performance was, was great, and you can see uh, the second half of the film. Um, Dwayne is is more or less him on his own with these cute little robots that are. You know, I don't know how they manage to get like expressions out of robots, but you do. It's it's very well done, and the use of these um, don't know what the actual term is paraplegic uh, actors. That um, I think they were. I think yeah, the term it, is bilateral amputees. Bilateral amputees. It's it's so very no legs. Yes, it's very. Um, I think they used that in Star Wars inventive. as well, didn't they? Yeah, it's very inventive, and it did lend it's, them a humanity as well as a roboticism as well. I think. Yeah, it's an interesting story behind that because the the reason this movie got made was because Douglas Trumbull worked on 2001 as an effects yes. man, mm. and at the time Easy Rider had made a lot of money for the studio as a low budget film, so they were interested in throwing uh, low budget film ideas out there and putting those together. This was one of a group of about six low budget films. Mm. Uh, and in that same group was American Graffiti. So George Lucas directed that. And so George Lucas would go on to be inspired by Silent Running, uh, for the, particularly for the, for the droids when it came to R2-D2. Mm. It was certainly, in, certainly inspired by this. But in some ways, I think the way these ones move in Silent Running uh, look even better than R2-D2 because, mm. yeah, you do get that... I don't know whether it's a centre of balance or something, but there's something about the way they move that I don't think could be ever replicated any other way than having someone inside them. It's uncanny, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. See, oh, when I was a kid, I, I saw these mo the, uh, the two or three robots and they looked really cute, but I never uh, questioned how they were moving around and stuff like that. Uh, but they just looked... The, the way that they moved was great. It's just great as a kid. They're fantastic looking... The movements are great, but when you're an adult, you look at it and you go, "How are they actually doing it?" <laughs> and then when you realise, and you realise how clever this design was, and the way that they use the actors, 
it's just an even better design that you, you, you originally thought. It's just fantastic, them droids are. There's a scene where Bruce Dern's character is getting, well, Lowell is getting increasingly more irate and, and uh, he's, he goes on a little ride about on one of his quad bikes and he knocks over Huey. And uh, we get from that, we get a it's weirdly touching scene where he's trying to repair Huey and like Dewey's looking on in concern. And you're thinking, hang on, I'm starting to relate and empathise with these robots. It's like, they're doing such a good job of that. And you don't you don't feel it, it to be awkward. You felt like that, that would be the anchor onto which Bruce Dern's character would attach itself to having anthropomorphising these two little creatures. But, but there's scenes in the movie beforehand where the robots are communicating with each other the mm. way that they're, uh, they're looking for I think which ones I want Louis that went missing uh, there was that whole scene where he's outside on the on the on the side of the spaceship so you can see that these robots have got personalities of sort so you, you, and then when you've got the little hisses and whistles and the the what's it the covers that just suddenly open up and uh, out and about like you just think oh yeah maybe they have got these personality where you can sympathize with what mm -hmm. do you think Dwayne? there was there was even one scene where i noticed that one of the the drones was tapping its foot i can't yes. remember whether it was tapping its foot to in impatience or something like that uh that was they were really doing an amazing job at humanizing these and um uh, trumbull's a very interesting guy because this was his first time as a director, so he's managing to capture all. And he didn't direct; he only directed one film after this, so he only did two uh, in his entire career. And uh, he did an absolutely, absolutely amazing job getting these human qualities out of these out of these robots. And I think it's down to that idea of putting the people in. They, mm. they if if you look at the behind the scenes with, you know, there's shots of them actually getting put in. They're having a ball. They're loving it. They're obviously having a good time making this film, mm. and um, but you know, they would have been happy to have have the work, and um, they were getting right into it. So you could tell. You could tell it was a labour of love. I'm not sure who, where I heard this, but I heard that because Trumbull worked on 2001: Space Odyssey, which is um, by all accounts, well, and by my account, it's a, it's a cerebral movie. It's not a movie about people. And this is the day it's diametrically opposed to that. This is a movie that is sci-fi that is all about people. It's all about the person and humanity. And there's very little to do with the space aspect. That's just merely a location a lot of the time. Uh, I think that's a nice point to make, yeah. I heard someone refer to these those two movies as the yin and the yang of each other. They're connected they're connected i heard that as well i think we've watched the same thing <laughs> yeah maybe maybe we have um but i think it's a great way of describing it, it is, because yeah. yeah it is so unlike 2001 and yet there are so many comparisons you can draw to it mm. i mean particularly particularly those shots that uh, were originally supposed to be in 2001 that trumbull brought over to this film and used with going through the rings of saturn and things like that yeah so um but yeah it, in in a lot of ways i i find this much much easier to watch than 2001 i find i've got to be in the right frame of mind to watch that one mm. whereas this one i can go yep i'm i can get into it a lot easier yeah it's uh it's it is that human aspect it's bruce stern's character is not immediately 
uh, likable. It's difficult to appreciate his better qualities. But once he is in the situation he's in, and he's alone, you feel the pain of his character. You can feel, you can feel the slow descent into madness, which is clearly what's happening. And when the film ends, um, and there is the inevitable, he's tried to do what he can to save the forest things, and he blows himself up with all the nukes. Which is a hell of a way to go, I've got to say. Um, you do feel it's a sad film. It's just that you genuinely emote. You get genuine emotions from watching it, and I like that about it. Whereas in two thousand and one, a lot of you, a lot of the emotion you get is what the fuck, and 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 yeah, and like that's amazing. But I'm not quite sure why, and what, I'm not quite sure what he's trying to say. But it's quite clear what this film is trying to say. And I think it takes a politically neutral stance as well. Uh, because even though it does have a serious politically environmental message, uh, which uh, a lot of a lot of films did and still do today, um, it was it was doing it in a in a in a very neutral way. It it, it didn't because you've you've we've all said that Bruce Stern was unlikable, mm. but it was almost like he was unlikable, but we couldn't look away because we could we can see we can see mm. what led led to those decisions. So. We can understand that point of view. We can understand the point of view of the guys who just wanted to get off the ship and get back home, and they were all excited about blowing up the forests, even though that's the wrong thing to do as well. But we mm. could understand what they were doing. Uh, we can we can certainly relate to the guilt that Lowell was going to face later on after realizing his actions and then feeling the regret. Um, so yeah, it was it was looking at the situation from all points of view and covering them off very nicely and that's that's one aspect that I really really enjoyed about this film I think there's a, there's one particular scene where he's feeling melancholic and he's going back to his forest dome and I think John Baez's uh, song starts there, the first one which is basically we're getting a, a music video at this point, we get like five minutes of just a, yeah. a song Rejoice the song yeah, he just wanders in there and looks around his place and puts his arm up, and a, and a bird of prey lands on his arm, and it's like he's like this is this man is nature personified. He is a druid, in the in the old sense of it. So, uh, but the Joan, Joan Baez music, what did you? That is quite a key aspect of this film. I think Joan Baez was probably the biggest name on the roster. They kind of hung it on her a little bit. It it absolutely was, and I just wanted to say when whenever I see that eagle shot, it reminds me. Wasn't there a <laughs> yeah. shot? Wasn't there a shot in the intro to the Life and Times of Grizzly Adams, uh, with oh with him with an eagle with an eagle jumping onto his arm there too? Um, it was the thing to do in the seventies. It was absolutely. Yeah. But Joan Byers, yeah, I really loved the music in this. Either, even though if you if you're in the if you're in a city, cynical frame of mind, you could you could say it's pretty corny. It's uh, uh, but it is very hippie at the same time, and you, yeah. you've got you've got uh, Lowell sitting there in his monk's habit, and yeah. uh, you know I, I kept thinking sackcloth. Sackcloth is the thing to do mm. if you're an environmentalist. Mm. <laughs> um, but yeah, well, I just I, kept and, thinking and I, it made me think of two thousand and one again because the music in that was such an important aspect of that film, whereas, and yet again, it was so different to this, very orchestral. Uh, very epic in scope. This one was very. Oh, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? It's very intimate. Yeah, 
yeah, instead of expansive like 2001, this was really, yeah, intimate's the word. I can't do mm -hmm. any better than that. Yeah. I think, I mean, I don't want to criticise John Byers. She's not to my taste, that sort of music. And the first song, Children in the Fields, I can't remember which one it was. She had Rejoice in the Sun and Silent Running were the two songs that she sang in the Yeah, movie. Rejoice in the Sun was the one, the first one that sort of comes out and just her voice just grates on me during the whole thing. It really ruins it for me a little bit. But, but yeah, uh, I do enjoy the Silent Running one at the end. That was, that was a nicer one as well. Well, yeah, I don't want to criticise uh, what is somebody, uh, a music legend from an entire decade. So Most of the time when I've watched sci-fi movies, it's always been orchestral music. It's just a bit stra uh, strange. I mean, these days it's always been orchestral music or maybe a pop, bit of pop. But it's just a bit strange seeing this uh, folk folk song suddenly appear in the middle of the this movie. It's just, uh, you know, me and music. But it's just a bit weird. What? Well, that's what makes this film different. Is it? There's a very hippie flavour to it. There is a very much of the times counterculture. Uh, it's got a '60s vibe to a lot of it. I mean, there's a the aesthetic is very '70s. During the whole thing, everybody's designing clothing and everything. They haven't made an attempt to futurify it, if that is indeed a word. Uh, especially the the other crewmates. It was 1972. You got to remember that. If you look at it from the context of being 1972, there was a heck of a lot that was yeah. yet to come. And if you look back at science fiction films of the previous 20 years, uh, they they look a lot different than Silent Running. So, you've yeah. got to keep that in mind too. I mean, 2001 is the closest one to Silent Running that there that there was. Mm -hmm. And even on the environmental side of things, like the 1973. I think that was that when Soylent Green came out. I think it was, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So that was that was still to come as well. Um, but that was an environmental film of a of a different sort. Mm. If you look at it from the context of the time, it was pretty amazing, and it's uh, a little sad that it didn't get the uh, the, the the marketing that it uh, deserved. I guess. I'm not sure that they they did any marketing for it, as far as I can recall. They might, I think they tried to use that film, this film, as a an experiment to see how well they could get it out of just word of mouth and, and not they didn't really spend anything on marketing it was very low budget i mean sucky did you have some figures for this well one? there's no box office for this at all there's nothing out there i mean but uh i know the budget was about just over a million just over a million but the top films in 1972 uh were like the godfather and stuff like that and this as you said didn't get that much publicity didn't get that much marketing put on it uh, so it never got that much uh, box office revenue. The, the the only way this has now become a core classic is through the fact that it's been shown constantly all around the world on late night TV and uh, specialist channels and so on. Mm. So, right, so people have just got to it that way. Uh, it's had, over its lifetime, it's had DVD, video, Blu-ray and 4K Blu-ray releases. I mean, just... Uh, it's only a few years ago it had a special edition uh, 4k res uh, release mm. uh, so it's it's a much loved film that people keep coming back to to be able to uh, put more uh, value added material to it and just sending it out I have to say 1972 was a fantastic year for uh, producing great things such as uh, ooh, me I was born in 1972 so I got <laughs> that's, this is the first film I think I reviewed it came out in my, the year of my birth and it dates me quite a lot. 
<laughs> That's what I usually say about 1973, but not today. Yeah. You get so green, I get this one green. Yep. Yeah, I'll have to look at what they're doing, 1972. 1970. So, uh, have we got any final thoughts or anything we want to get out just about this film? I, I mean, for me, I think, I don't know if this is the right film, but is it Dark Sky that we reviewed? Yeah. Um, is that similar. the one? Yeah, Very that's similar. a John Carpenter film. Yes. Um, I got I got a lot of vibes from that. Yeah. Because of the, the the sense of isolation, and like what they clearly thought space was going to be like in the future was not all adventure running around and zap zap, but it was going to be a few men, in and in isolated for many years on their own, which is realistic, uh, even if the uh, lack of gravity of uh, the gravity wasn't realistic. And in fact, none, nothing else was particularly realistic in it. But uh... well, some the similar designs between Dark Sky, the goofing off in Dark Sky, they're just similar elements between this and that movie. Yeah, they, mm. uh, I did notice that as, as soon as I watched it. I think it, yeah, exactly the same sort of film. Well, not the same sort of uh, feel of a film. Have you have you seen Dark Sky, Dwayne? I haven't. No. Check that out. It's a John Carpenter film. It's 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 an experience, and, and the alien beach ball. I'm just gonna. I'm not gonna spoil any more than that. Just say the alien that's beach a comedy, right? Mm, no, I <laughs> don't think not. it is. <laughs> Although maybe you, inadvertently. You, you, yeah, you judge it for yourself and come yeah. back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I I'm not usually a note taker, but I've written lots of notes. Yeah, me too. So can I can I go through? Oh, yeah, please. Through yeah. One thing that this reminded me of in terms of Doctor Who. Was the the waters here, of Mars? Here we go. I got a, here we go. What do you mean? Here we go. <laughs> I knew it would come up. I knew it with you guys it would come up at least once. Doctor Who. Doctor Who. Yeah, it was uh, waters of Mars. It reminded me of that with uh, with the setting there of all the uh, things growing. I think that's you guys. You guys reviewed that recently, didn't you? Did you notice some of the an some of the animal shots were really cool? There was a point there where a mm. lizard went and put its arm over a, t a turtle. Did you notice yeah. that? That was that was really cool. Actually, the actual opening credits are a very yeah. close-up sort of macrocosm uh, shots of snail crawling over stuff and little turtles and things. It's great. The, on first viewing, I wasn't quite sure why he decided to suicide. Whether it was whether it was guilt or whether he just had enough or he was about what to get he was caught, doing. I think. So he just didn't want to get caught. That was what it was all about. So he was really... I don't know. I mean, it's difficult to say, but he, uh, I think, yeah, generally, he's aware of the guilt of what he's done, doesn't want to get caught. He's, he's deceived a lot of people and uh, in the what he's actually done. And then the way the people, the other people on the the end of the uh, the communication are, are bigging him up, saying you're a hero, you're all this stuff. He just probably thought, you know, I might as well go out as a hero. And just mm. blow himself up. It was also mm. made on a real aircraft carrier, wasn't it? Called the, the, Valley, the Forge. Valley Forge. The same name, yeah. So that was decommissioned, fully decommissioned after this. And did they did they nuke it? That's what I want to know. Did they nuke it? Don't know. No, it'd be nice Don't to know. know. <laughs> Probably somewhere in the desert in Australia. Maybe blew it up there. That's what they usually do out in the desert here. The, oh, the, the design of the ship was based on a building in, in Osaka, in Japan. So I can't remember the name of the building, but I thought that was interesting too. Yeah, the, the struts and the um, the sort of modules and the domes were were based on something in Japan, yeah. I read that too. The That design, if you look, the, way, the tracking shot they've had, there's so much detail on the, that model. 
that model was somewhere like 25 feet long. But the only time that they didn't have the detail is when you see, watch, look around the, the dome. Yeah, the forest, <laughs> the domes. All right, there's, there's like been a minimum detail around that dome at all. Ships but are great. Yeah. They just don't know how to do forests. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the, uh, the, uh, the, dome, the dome stuff, the forest bit, was done in a, a little aircraft hangar and it wasn't very large at all. So uh, they, I don't think they had the... Uh, the wherewithal to use an actual proper dome even though it was based on one in Missouri I think or something like that. Some of the other films that Trumbull was involved with, probably worth a mention, Blade Runner, he was he was he worked on that. Close Encounters. Close Encounters, Close Encounters yes. Yep. Star that's Trek a couple one. of huge films. Yep. Oh that's right, Star Trek One. It's a t- uh, I find that a tough movie to get through, but um Yeah, I think everybody yeah. does. But still yeah. but still I can I can <laughs> see some of those effects that he's taken across. Yeah, from yeah. from Silent Running to Star Trek, the motion picture. Um, but the other film that he did, I don't know if you guys have ever seen it, Brainstorm. No, I don't think I have. No. I, 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 I hadn't heard about this film at all until I started doing a bit of research on Douglas Trumbull. Go on, though, Twain. Yeah, it was a it was an interesting one because I think I'd have to be corrected if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that the star of that, Natalie Wood, died during the making of that. I think it was some kind of some kind of accident. I can't remember exactly the details, uh, but do we want to go into details? Of is it Douglas Trumbull's fault? That's all I'm asking. Because I mean, well, you know, it's, uh, maybe somebody else's fault. Rob, her husband at the time, maybe. Wow. Oh, oh what take? It was a p- potential murder, was it? Ooh. Well, I can't can't tell you. There's all sorts of allegations out there. Robert Wagner was the one from Heart to That's Heart. That's right. Yeah, oh, yeah, right. yeah. Right, and they're, they're still going on about it. I mean, it took them two years for the film to be released after that, the Brainstorm film, and because uh, they just the insurance company just wanted to uh, cancel it altogether. But it's Douglas Trumbull that fought for it. It says, look, all those scenes were actually in the can, and we'll just uh, film any additional scenes around uh, any footage I've already shot. And so they agreed about, and then nearly two years later, they actually released it. Wow. Uh, nobody saw the film. Even but that was an interesting movie too because and it's very uh, Trumbull-esque because it's it's about virtual reality uh, that film and rather than be uh, totally engrossed in the science fiction science fiction aspects of virtual reality it's a very people oriented movie so dealing about how people react to virtual reality and 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 the trouble surrounding that and very in a very similar way so he is interested even though he's a special effects guy he does have an interest in in people and and how they work so i can i can see why these two films that he did people have very high regard for him and a lot of inspiration from his movies certainly you certainly get that feeling from he's a people person and and it's the people's tales that he's telling rather than a high-minded concept that he's also that's 2001 thing isn't it that's it Mm. yeah there's, uh, so I've got a few things then. Um, so going back into Douglas Trumbull, um, he's he's steeped in special effects all the way from when his father was actually the special effects supervisor on The Wizard of Oz. So he's that's how he, he grew up and uh, so knew all these stuff to do. The film was uh, was written by Derek Washburn, Michael Cimino or Cimino, and Steve Barker, and two of those are very familiar names. Well, Chimino, Chimino I recognise from somewhere. He's the director writer of things like The Deer Hunter and Heaven's Gate. Wow! Right, so he he did this. 
and Steve Bochow, 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 Bochco, Bochco. He wrote and uh, created shows like Hill Street Blues, L.A. Lord, Doogie Howser. Right, so he's got such a big TV pedigree these days. Or did he has passed away since? Um, there's a uh, while well, these people were uh, before this film was written. Um, as this film was being written, there was a whole plot line that they exercised from the movie, which involved aliens. Yeah, I heard I heard a line about that, but I'm not quite sure because they needed to. The whole concept was that silent running part of it was just the idea that they wanted to get to. Um, and I think they got to the point where they figured they didn't need uh, the aliens in it to make to add anything to the film, no. and and I don't know what we, quite, quite what it would have done to the film if they had chosen to do that. Why do they need aliens when they've got a pool table with a single hole in the middle? That's yeah, that pool table and the robot arm right in the way. So at least if you know that robot arm, just like yeah, you can't hit it from that side of the table because there's a bloody great robot arm there just to place the balls there. But yeah, that's the worst pool table ever. <laughs> oh god! The, the domes that were on the actual ship. For many years, the uh, well, the actual the actual ship, as I said, is 25 feet long, and it stayed in Douglas Trumbull's uh, storage centre for many, many years. Afterwards. I think it was made out of many, many airfix kits. Yes. I think they used many, many airfix kits, so it would have been very flimsy. And then the downs themselves, once he decided he's going to dismantle the ship and just get rid of it, the downs themselves they ended up in various places, and one of them I think went for auction. Uh, a few years ago for a couple of hundred grand wow. and so it's uh, well sought out after a piece of uh, prop merchandise and one of them's in a museum somewhere is that right yes so one of them's in a museum in the states a science fiction museum in the states uh, the actors themselves the most famous most familiar one for us these days is uh, after Bruce Stern obviously is uh, Ron Rifkin who played one of the uh, the people in Alias? Who uh, uh, Jennifer Garner's character's boss, who's all involved in the big mystery, uh, but he's 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 a big character actor on TV these days. Which so, which character was he playing? He played Barker, the one in the white suit. Yeah, yeah, I get you. Oh yeah, yeah, I recognise him now. Yeah, yeah. you'll yeah. you'll recognise him these days. He's he's got a little small beard these days. Mm. Alright, that's done for a few years. Uh, and I think that's the end of my notes. Uh, any more from you, Dwayne? I'm done. Right, cool. Well, we will come back in a short while with any listeners' feedback, if we have any. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, go for it, Sucky. Have a look. There is. Like, there cool. is. Okay, listeners' feedback. Sucky, why don't you uh, give it a go? We've got uh, Cliff Ash, Cliff from uh, Ship's Deep Dive, and he says, Great film, seen it many times. To me, this is a sci-fi stoner movie with a soundtrack to company perfectly rolled spliff. Dear me, Cliff. Probably Bruce's best work as he has done as he's done as he has done a fantastic job along with Okay, start that again. Probably No, no you Bruce... don't need to. It's, it's one of Shep's. It's it's probably right. You're probably doing it justice, <laughs> to be fair. Probably Bruce's best work as he has does a fantastic job along with the robot talent. Nice pick of a classic film. Cheers, Cliff. Hey, could I could I just ask? I've I've never heard of this Shep's guy. Does he do a podcast at all? No, we don't no. have any podcast. I didn't think so. No. Uh, we don't know him at all. Uh, we we tried to try to distance ourselves from our fans. 
Dwayne, you know, <laughs> got to keep that elitism aspect to our pod. <laughs> yeah, is there any more feedback after that one? Steve Davis, uh, oh. this is a film of truth and beauty. Bruce Dern is amazing, and I'm pretty sure I can trace all my love of sci-fi to the little robots. I first watched this as quite a young child with my dad, and I remember tears all round. Lovely. Brilliant. Thank you, Steve. Uh, and we have RV Athletics fan. If he's any related to you. Anyway, it says uh, one of the best science fiction films of all time. Excellent. Can, well, I, can I give a shout out to Ross there? That's Ross from Gallifrey's Most Wanted. So good stuff, Ross. Ah, you see. You do that. Brilliant. So thank you, everybody, for your feedback. And take your seats we'll be back at some point with another review of another film once Stucky gets his finger out and schedules it yeah is that right Stucky? pardon what eh? right lovely so Sorry, thank you very distracted. much no thank you Dwayne that was that was excellent it was a great pick of movie because I mean I think it's the older science fiction movies that I'm finding uh has gone under my radar in the past and, and I'm, I'm I'm happy to be picking these up now so thank you for that have you had a good time had a great time Excellent. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back, guys. Absolutely. Anytime. And so that's been our pod. So from Sucky Dwayne and myself, it's goodbye. Oh, yeah. Yeah.